La la yeah. la la wait till I give my money right I had a dream I could buy my way to heaven When I awoke I spent that on a necklace I told God I'll be back in a second Man it's so hard not to act Welcome to this special episode of Upbeat from Everything Conducting The podcast made by conductors for conductors My name is John Devlin, and I'm the music director of the Wheeling Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Enrico Lopez-Yanez, the principal pops conductor of the Nashville Symphony. Each week on Upbeat, we explore concepts related to the field of conducting. It doesn't matter if you're just starting to explore the idea of conducting or already lead your own ensemble, we've got something for you. For today's special edition, we're going to move right to our interview, which is with Titus Underwood, the principal oboist of the Nashville Symphony. And Enrico, I know in your work now for several years together with Titus in Nashville, you've formed a very close friendship and bond, and the issue of race within orchestras right now is such an important one, and this is perhaps the ideal person to have that conversation with. Absolutely. I mean, I have felt so fortunate to have someone like Titus in my life who is so willing to have these discussions and share his perspective and has taken so much time in his own life to just think about these hard questions and the types of things that our industry is facing, uh, let alone our society, on a day-to-day basis. So I'm really looking forward to being able to share some of those discussions we've had privately with you and with our listeners, who I think will find it really helpful, intriguing, and hopefully beneficial during these times. Yeah, over the past months, I mean, Titus has been such a vocal proponent for the cause of equality within our industry. And I have seen just the highlights of these are when he's on larger panels and a couple of shorter videos and interviews he's done. So looking forward to a to a lengthy conversation with him where we can dive into this. I, I can't wait to get started. Yeah. And I'm also looking forward to hearing some more of the cool musical selections that Titus has chosen for today's episode. So let's head over to the interview. Then we don't break. We not the bank. We all we got. Switch whips. We locate way out of state. Bada bing, bada bang. It is my great pleasure to welcome our guest for today's episode, Titus Underwood, who is currently the principal oboe of the Nashville Symphony, after having previously served as the acting associate principal of the Utah Symphony. And Titus is also coming off of the big news of having been one of the Sphinx Medal of Excellence award winners this year. So we are thrilled to have the opportunity to speak to Titus. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, for sure. (laughs) And I also just want to throw in that I consider you a dear friend, Titus. So besides all those fancy things that you've done, it's just great to get to you and have you here. You are the homie. You are the homie. (laughs) So, Titus, you've had a fascinating career so far, and you've reached now this sort of historic monumental position of being the first black tenured principal oboist of a major symphony orchestra. So can you tell us a little bit about your path and your musical trajectory thus far and what it is that got you here to Nashville and this position? Okay, so I guess I can start my humble beginnings. I'm from Pensacola, Florida. Mm -hmm. I'm the youngest of six kids, a preacher's kid. Started out there, went to Cleveland Institute of Music for my undergrad, and then I went to Juilliard for my master's. Colburn for my AD, and then I went over to Rice for a year, and then I was in Utah Symphony acting principal for two years, for associate principal, sorry. And then I was at Lynn for a year, then I wound up an acting principal of, of Nashville, and I turned into two years, 
And then after that, I won the audition for Principal Oboe of Nashville Symphony. I recently just got my tenure. So that's right. Wow. Congratulations. Congratulations. And we we're thrilled yeah. that, that you're locked in with us for at least a while. <laughs> I know I'm locked in. <laughs> I mean, can you tell us a little bit about once you entered the orchestral world, what what was that like? What was your expectation going in and maybe the reality once you started mm-hmm. actually participating in orchestras? Ooh. So, I mean, when I first, I thought I was going to have a straight line, right? Like, you go to the fancy schools, you put, you get, I mean, my teachers are amazing. They're still my mentors to this day. And you think you go there, you get a final of an audition, you knock the audition out and you're just there. You play music and they pay you to do it. And it's amazing. And you just on top of the world. I used to like, like, man, I gotta just get an orchestra job. I thought people won jobs like drafted to the NBA. You know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> hey, you made it. <laughs> you know, so you were the last man standing. You know, so I I really glorized it. And I, and I, I mean, it's still an amazing, I love my career. I love what I do. But then I started to realize the politics involved. And I started to realize the territory where there's schools or, you know, people who want it a certain way or sometimes it's not the most flexible at times. So, mm-hmm. and, and I started to see my existence, you know, and I've been open about this. I'm, I'm a tall, you know, 6'2 black guy playing the oboe. And before I had dreadlocks in undergrad, you know? So like, I cut my hair and stuff. I was like, man, I'm going to have to fit in somehow, even though I love my dreadlocks, you know, rest RIP Titus's dreadlocks. <laughs> but I think um, I was shocked by sometimes how inflexible it was. And I was shocked by how, not in a political sense, but like conservative it can be as far as, you know, we were a lot of times imitators, you know, and not creators. Mm-hmm. And I, I get it. There's a structure to it. You're told when to play, when, the, the, when the baton comes down and your program's already set the whole time. I, I mean, I get that, but it, it seems like we were just there to do a job sometimes. And mm. that that part for me was very, very eye-opening. But most of all, just all of the inner workings of politics. And the orchestra is a complicated thing because it's like a, it's a functional and dysfunctional family at the same time. So there's a lot of feelings going in. People know each other, people in relationships with each other. Like all this stuff that was going on that I wasn't necessarily that interested in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I realized it, in all of this madness, you know, that we could still create beautiful music, but I, I still saw it, it needed to be shaken up and it needed to change in ways. And even I, I'm very open about that too, the things that need to change within the orchestra field. And I would say those are the most shocking things. That was the thing that bothered me the most and bothers me today. Mm -hmm. And Titus, it's been revelatory to me to hear some of the things that you've put out there publicly about your journey and about the complicated and often just clearly wrong way that orchestras have approached the types of questions that have confronted you directly. And some of the things you've talked about is having to prove yourself more than your peers with white skin and having that word quality thrown around like there was some sort of disjunction between the questions of race and quality in our in our field. So um, I think that we get to the topic of inclusion. And that is something that is such a big question, not only now and in recent times because of the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, but for decades and decades and decades. 
decades. So we talk a lot about programming, and that's not always enough, certainly in the way that you approach this question. Could you talk to our audience a little bit about what you feel are the crucial things that need to be addressed right away and systemically? Okay, so there's one that's, I'm going to talk about the low-hanging fruit, and then we can get into more detailed nuanced suggestions. The most obvious thing is this, this, there's this thing saying blind auditions. Auditions have never been blind. Like, the med has been blind. I mean, if you have trial weeks, if you have a screen that comes down at any point, it's like, you know, there's that joke. It's like, don't peek, but you got your fingers apart, like, over your face. <laughs> like, that's, that's what I hear when people are saying their screen. If the screen comes down at any point, you should not call that blind audition. There needs to be an honest conversation about auditions. And the other thing is, it's like, you know, I, I tell people I've been open about all the finals. I was in like, like 15 finals or something like that. And the only one where the screen was up the whole time was Nashville. I say to people, it's not that, hey, I didn't get the other 14 because I'm Black, right? But did I not? I, I have unanswered questions. I would like the question to be answered, but it would never be answered. But if there was just a fair process... You know, we all have implicit bias. Every person does, no matter what color you are, but there's implicit bias that is based on race. This has been proven plenty of times. Orchestras can take this head on with just relinquishing some power. Mm. You don't need to see somebody play. You can hear them play. We're in an acoustic art, right? It's an acoustic art. We're making sound. So the way that I look during the audition process, what does that have to do with my acoustic art? Mm. Like, I, I really want someone to come up with a great explanation of a trial week. You know, a trial week is the 100-person committee. You know, everyone is listening to you at that point. So how can someone be the right fit? There's a lot of things that come into place. People are supposed to grow. If someone has the ability to play at that level, then you should give them a chance to grow and be encouraging. Mm-hmm. And another thing besides the screen audition, I think that comments should not be anonymous. I say anonymity breeds toxicity. If you can hide, it's like a YouTube comment section. You know, 32 rad 92. And it's like, <laughs> I think your video sucks. And it's like some weird picture. You know, no, show your face, see who you are. In the medical field, doctors have to sign their names in, in certain institutions with their comments on different residents or different you know, medical students, if they have to do it, they're literally saving lives, literally saving lives. What makes you think that you as an orchestra musician, either pulling a bow across some strings or blowing air into a wind instrument with holes in it, that your your animatedity should be there? Why should it be there? It should be something that's completely above board. Because if someone smiles in your face and then behind your back, you're like, I think he sucks. Would you write that down on paper? Would, would, would you back that up and just say it if you have to see me every day or sit three feet away from me or whatever, 10 feet or, or 15, whatever? I, I think these small changes can really change the culture of orchestras. And then back to the inclusion thing, I, I think that orchestras, they should be really honest when they talk about quality. How can you bring up culture and quality those are two completely different things and when many cultures in in a place you have different perspectives which makes the product actually better so we're talking about quality should we go every chair down in orchestra and have every single person play and see if everyone is holding up this 
this crazy standard that's in everyone's wildest imagination. I would say an audition is people competing against another person's wildest imagination of what they think is great. And yeah, I'm a person who's about standard. It needs to be great. It needs to be polished. It needs to be beautiful, in tune, resonant, singing, imaginative, musical. I'm all on board with that. But if we keep bringing up when we say inclusion and you bring up quality one more time, I'm going to say every musician in every orchestra's tenure do an audition right now. <laughs> do it right now. The people who are fighting the hardest for these contracts and protections say, no, we don't need to have any initiative because this is, we're not, we have not had anything that has been based on race. Let's have all you audition and then we'll bring all the people of color in and or black people and we'll all have everybody's audition in one big pot and then let the chips fall where they fall. I think we need to have a more serious dialogue about this stuff and stop having these kind of throwing darts across the room. And then we can we can bring ourselves to a much more in-depth place and figure out a lot of this stuff together. Uh, and some people who don't want to be on board just going to have to go with the way. So Titus, as I'm sure you're aware, recently there was a New York Times article that brought up this issue of blind auditions. The argument in that particular article being that we should do away with it, that there should not be blind auditions, um, which is contrary to what for years people have argued was important to address this issue of having blind auditions throughout the entire process. So I'm wondering if we were to scrap the entire system and start from scratch and you could re-envision it, what would be your ideal method for auditioning and bringing in new members to the orchestra? Oh, man. See, that's really that's a really complex question. It sounds simple, but it's complex. I didn't um, say this was going to be an easy interview. I just I know. Right? It, really, it never makes it easy. <laughs> so I love this guy. It does make it easy for me. So I think there's a few things that need to happen before I can give a, very, before I can give a really clear answer, right? I think there should be data pulled on how every butt and every seat in every orchestra was hired. Hmm. Were they hired through a traditional process? Were they hired for the screen fully up? Did they have trial weeks? Were they invited? Mm-hmm. Were they were they shoehorned in? Was it just someone who was just put in the chair and they just decided that's who's going to be there? How was every button, every Ixum orchestra, Ropa orchestra, how were they hired? Mm-hmm. And what is the percentage of people who went through a quote-unquote fair process? What is the percentage of people who were invited? What is the percentage of people who were auto-advanced or whatever the case? How many people have truly won their job. Then we can get to what does this look like? Because the people we're judging on the other side a lot of times are people who didn't necessarily get through that process that I'm auditioning in. Hmm. So people think that the system worked for them because it did. Hmm. So they think that may be the best way because their life has been great with that (laughs) system. I'm not the first black oboe player to be a principal of an orchestra. I'm the first to have tenure. I'm not the first to be principal. So a great friend of mine was one of the most amazing players I have ever heard. And I saw what he went through on so many levels. He's a dear friend of mine and he just left the business. Now, I think, like I said, there are lots of unanswered questions when it comes to these dynamics when it comes to why a person leaves or why a person stays, right? I don't know 
all the details, all the dynamics of everyone who's involved. So I won't speak on that. But if we were to throw this whole thing away, it's hard to think of it in a utopian sense, right? Because if we were to throw it all away, everyone just flush all their jobs down the toilet and everybody just see how they did. And we'll see what the demographic looks like. And it looked totally different. And I think that it shouldn't be just this like um, this this playing thing. I think there's a way that should be announced that people are they figure out how a person can be hired and what they offer besides just playing on the stage. Because I'm principal, oh, but right now you know we're furloughed for a year, mm. and I feel bad for all of our colleagues, everyone's involved, and, and myself. And but what do we have to offer the world right now as just an artist, creative thinkers, and. I think all those things that we learned within COVID and during the pandemic, we should be thinking about what value do we have, everyone has, besides just playing notes on the stage. Then after we come through thinking, what are the skill sets we learned during this time? What are the conversations we had during this time? How can we make it truly anonymous and talk about real blind auditions to stop critiquing it like it's been blind auditions because that's not existed. And if you want a higher demographic, I know people say, how do you get more black people in orchestra? Then you figure out for your city, how should that look? What's the demographic of your city? How can you strive towards a certain amount of black people in those seats? Because I know the rate of attrition is very, very, it's, it's low. I mean, people leave very slowly in orchestras. If we have 15 open spots, really think about that. So you don't have to do this community outreach thing where you have to figure out how to talk to the people. You have natural bridges because you have a big enough critical mass of black people in your orchestra that you'll be able to connect with your community in a meaningful way without figuring it out. You know, there's a huge check population in a, in a city and we have no one who's checking the orchestra i'm going to have a hard time figuring out how to connect because that's not the culture in which i come from right. all of those things how can we have a full true interview playing artistic process in my perfect world all those things and how it looks for different orchestras but all being anonymous because i think when it's not anonymous this is the way we do it i call that states rights I think there needs to be federal things that goes for every institution, that every institution is fair, but how it looks for them can be totally different. What looks what it looks like in, say, for instance, Detroit will look different than, say, for instance, a Utah. I can't give the same answer for those two institutions. Demographics are wildly different. The cultures are wildly different. They're both in America. But what does that look like? And I think that would give us a true answer of how an audition process would look like. But starting from the very beginning, anonymous truly anonymous no anonymity within the review process on the other end but anonymous as far as the candidates and preserving what they have and then making that truly truly fair so titus one of the things we've also talked about is reflecting our community Mm. which i think often leads us to discuss also appealing to and attracting our community to us as an institution in terms of programming but also in terms of other things what kind of things do you think orchestras should be thinking about Mm -hmm. in order to successfully attract and reach a wider audience ah great question so it's interesting when an orchestra programs a whole season no one ever says it's an all-white season it's just the season and this is what we're releasing we are playing european diasporic music that's what we're playing. So if I play black music, there's going to be different people from different parts of the world who are black. So whether you're playing, the, uh, you know, American blacks so or descendants of slaves, black people like Florence Price and 
or you playing a Fredo who's from uh, Ghana and Nigeria. I mean, you can, I could go down the list. Chevalier St. George, who was, who, was, who was French, you know, there's so many different types of Black people on the planet that have been writing music. So if you were to program this, it won't just be Black music as a monolith. It would be Black people from different parts of the world with mm. different cultural information. I mean, you also have to have Black people on your stage. If you want that demographic to come there, people want to see themselves reflected on the stage. They do want to see themselves on the stage. And I think it also has to do with education as well. Like, if I were to teach a young Black girl about Chevalier St. George and Mozart at the same time, or if I were to teach her about Chevalier St. George, absolutely Mozart, because they were contemporaries there writing at the same exact time. So if I were to say, this is music that they call classical music, hey, this guy was writing at this time. And that little Black girl, that little Black boy sees that and be like, wow, that's amazing. Like, imagine me threading that in the same way they threaded classical music for me before. Mm -hmm. So they threaded it through a European lens for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So why can I thread it with a more complete lens? I say I'm going to be absent of teaching Black children about, uh, Europe, uh, of course, the massive contributions within this art form. But also, I'm going to have a very heavy emphasis on not just centering whiteness, but minimizing just the white aspect about it so that it's more balanced. Mm -hmm. So that one thing, when it comes to education, when it comes to reflecting on the stage, when it comes to the programming, when it comes to the way people come in there, like, what are we wearing? Why are we still wearing tails? Tail? I mean, like, we're still wearing tails, and then we say, we're not going to wear tails, we're going to dress in black. I mean, like, there's so many ways that we can figure out how to make this different and make this, the, the cool hasn't really hit the orchestras yet. And I bet if the cool hits orchestras, man, you're going to see not only just the people who've been consuming loving the cool that's being there, but also a newer demographic that would love to be there. Hell, clap between movements. Let somebody cheer if they do a badass solo. Like, jeez. Like, what's the... You you are stopping natural rea human reactions to music. When we're there, I can't... I mean, I'm going to sit there and I have to hold it all inside because you're actively listening. Because I think they don't feel like they can participate in it. Especially, I would speak for Black culture and Black descendants of slave culture here. Uh, there's a call and response type of culture that's there. Even if you go to a Black church, it's like, yeah, come on, all right. You know, the preacher's preaching and it's like this thing that's going on. And like, there's this call and response. If someone's dancing, yeah, get it, get it, go, go. You know, there's like, there's none of that that's going on on in classical music. Like, if I'm playing a, a cadenza and I'm laying it down, and what comes about? Like, yeah, you get it, you get it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's what culture is welcome there. You know, I would love for someone to cheer me on doing a cadenza. Why not? I'll get more in the zone and, and be like, y'all want to hear another? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, people are like, oh, that's not classy. What? Just sitting there stiff and people cough in between movements and dropping glasses when they get sleepy <laughs> during a movement. You know, is that culture? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. So what? I think there's just going to be different things that can make the demographic change. How does the environment feel? Because the environment would be different, be more welcoming and inclusive of more different cultures and more welcoming. So there's my answer to my long, and you can tell I've thought about a lot of stuff long time because everything's long-winded. <laughs> you've been through a lot. You've just been through a lot. And you've seen a lot of the, 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 the worst parts of what organizational culture can look like. Um, what are things that off of the stage, away from the orchestra, but with the management side of things and the way boards operate and they relate to the donors who have a lot of power, um, how can we change the culture in those areas in a way that's going to be positive for our future? I think 
in orchestras, there are no evil empires. So people say management, that, that can be an evil empire. Musicians can be evil empire. The board can be an evil empire. But I think if, you know, the way that things can change is if management, musicians, board work together and they can figure out what are the best solutions for the city. That's why I think data gathering for what your city demographic is. Like, what is your demographic and how are you serving those communities? Is it is it just about getting butts in the seats? Yes, I mean, of course, you have to keep it afloat. We're in a capitalistic society, so you have to keep the, the, the lights on and all that stuff. But by it's like looking at when they put spent all that money on Black Panther, right? And it was like, oh, man, it's going to be an all-black cast. We don't know. And then it blows every <laughs> single Marvel movie out of the water. So... If people see themselves, you will get the dollars. People will pay to see it. So because it is diverse doesn't mean it's not going to translate. Not It's going to translate actually into more dollars. So donors give to that. Be comfortable with it being more diverse or people don't. And invite more Black people on your board. That can change. The demographics of your board needs to change. The demographic of your management will change. And then the culture, when you not just one person there, one person here, but get five, six, seven Black people on your board. Get like 20 Black people in that management or Black and brown people, people from different demographics in your management. And you will see these different cultural contributions. You won't have so many blind spots because if it's one person there, they can be tokenized. If it's two, those two people trying to survive, but then there was three, four, five, it's going to be different cultures that are reflected there. So if you have that there and these people are on your artistic committee and these people are on your board and these people are on in, in your management, in your orchestra, you're going to see people requesting different things because they're going to see themselves there, which makes the organization richer by default. It's an easy answer, but it's a tough fix because mm-hmm. it doesn't sit right within people's people's view. So I think if they were to see that as valuable, then it would actually turn into something valuable. We've talked a little bit, you and I, Titus, about all the wonderful statements in support of Black Lives Matters that orchestras have put out. And the big question, of course, being what is next? Just putting out that statement is not enough. It's really the actions that follow that. And some of the stuff that you're talking about are those perfect kinds of steps that organizations can be taking to really prove that they're serious about these statements and that it's important. Are there any other things that come to your mind um, that would be important points of follow-up to prove the importance of the statements that have been made by all these institutions? Yes, I think that a hard thing for people in America to address is race is a very, it's still such a touchy topic. Like it's such a triggering topic for people to talk about race, but race permeates everything in America. It just permeates everything. So if you want to do something, first acknowledge how you may have been complicit with not having Black people within your organization. If Black lives really matter, I want you to think about 18, you know, 06, Beethoven's Third, right? What's simultaneously happening in America during Beethoven's Third? We just did Beethoven's birthday and all these works. What's happening on American soil? What's happening on the West Coast of Africa and Europe? What's happening in the islands and in South America while that's going on? Because it seems like nothing else was going on in the world in classical music, but Beethoven's third because he led us into romanticism. Oh my God, music has changed forever. You know, how, what's happening? Because 
during that time, my people were breaking soil and their backs were being beaten in American soil. The biggest contribution of wealth to America was, you know, chattel slavery here because there was many industries of insuring slaves and clothes and textiles, cotton and tobacco and exports, all this stuff. And then all this capital is built up in America and then they built, you know, all these, these halls and orchestras come here. Once you really know how you've been complicit in it and you know the context of your existence and how we came to be and how it looks the way that it looks in context of all this historical anchoring, then you will have more conviction on saying, you know what, we should see how we can intentionally look to change our demographic of our orchestra and of our board and of our management. Because this is the history. He's like, well, you, you're living in the past. Well, if none of that matter, if Black people didn't matter in the 1800s, Beethoven doesn't matter either if history doesn't count, then it, not, none of this counts. You can't play historical music all the time without a full historical context And if you get to that point, we can have a deeper conversation about Mm -hmm. how to go from here and not repeat that ever again. And you have your own personal stories and experiences, including from here in Nashville, that you have recently begun to share publicly. And I think that's something that our listeners might benefit from hearing if it's something that you'd be willing to share with us. Sure, I can can talk a little bit about it. I won't go into all the details, Mm -hmm. but I'll go into some details about it. I would tell you how it ended and I'd tell you like <laughs> what it resulted in. We'll go backwards from there. Okay. So it resulted in someone had to be removed and this person was putting out threats and was being stalkers in nature. Person was being antagonistic for a very long time. Got to the point where uh, during the week of my tenure, you know, I left town. I was sleeping at other people's houses while this stuff was going on. And because I didn't I didn't feel safe in my own home. And also I had to put an order of protection, which was approved. Another person put an order of protection on this person as well. So he has two orders of protections on him. Uh, that's public record. So I can talk about that. And I knew I didn't know that it would get to that point. But I knew I could feel the tension of what was going on. And the people and, and, and I want to make something really clear. I was not saying anything at my job. I wasn't even talking much at my job. So I would just go there and sit there and play. And this person felt like the need to just further escalate this situation when I literally would show up to work, sit down and play and go home. That was my job. That was literally what I did. Obviously, this person racialized their relationship or our relationship at work where, you know, always asked me about my hair, what Black people think about Bill Cosby or who are Black people voting for and it goes this person is rapping in front of me using the n-word and it just goes on and 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 it was just constant and it's like wouldn't wouldn't a young woman wouldn't her antenna go up if some man's like oh you look so pretty and every time you see you look so pretty i love your clothes oh you look nice in those jeans like every time he talks to you he's talking about the way you look constantly you'd be like uh this is kind of uncomfortable Mm-hmm. So if someone brings up my race, most of the time we speak to each other, why does this have to be a conversation every time? We're just colleagues. Right. I'm here to play. You're here to play. I deserve equal respect. And then it escalated to a point where this person sent out, you know, an email that was very, very long, you know, eight pages printing it off where they were putting in very menacing things and threatening things within there that were very troubling. And it led to this person having to be removed because 
there was a lot of coded, violent gestures being mentioned and other people came forth and, and spoke to management about, you know, this person saying weird, threatening stuff and and that person. And I thank God for management and, and people stepping in to remove that person. But the bigger question I ask is, why aren't there things in the contract that can correct and make sure that that doesn't go on for a year and a half? Mm-hmm. Why is there a culture that allows that to be there when you know that person is acting out of pocket? Why the silence? I shouldn't have to put an order of protection on someone. That should not have happened ever, ever. People who know this is going on should be reporting these things. Mm -hmm. Who police musicians against musicians? Why can't we have better behavioral language in our CBA? Why, Why is tenure so bulletproof to the point that someone can act to to the point of putting out violent things that that's what gets them removed? I mean, if you're at some corporate job, you've been gone a long time ago. And the order of protection is not easy to get. I'm going to let people know it's not easy. So they have to have really substantial evidence to be like, we think this is not safe for this person to be around this other person. For two different judges to put that on a person, then that had to be some serious stuff that had to be said or done. The reason why I'm open about that is that I want there to be systemic change. I don't want my horror story to be like, oh, crap, Titus went through another thing. You know, more horror porn is what I call it, like black horror porn. Mm -hmm. You know, I want systemic change. I want the culture to change. Read Where Do We Go From Here by Martin Luther King. Read New Jim Crow. Read, you know, When Affirmative Action Was White. Read The Color of Law. Read Souls of Black Fools by W.E.B. Du Bois. Like, dive into this world and you will understand where all this stuff comes from. Different people's presence brings out brings about different people's reaction. When, you're, when my presence is there, it may bring out a different reaction in that person than you may have seen. Because my presence has never been there in a permanent way. So how can you? I never guess. Of course you can't guess. I can't sit here and say, if I'm hanging out with all my homeboys, none of them are misogynistic. How can I know? I'm not I'm not in a relationship with him. So how can I know what's going on? I would need to listen to a young lady for her to tell me that this is problematic. And then mm-hmm. you see all these other people saying this is problematic. Then I have proper evidence on this thing. But to say that this person is exempt of something and my presence, my presence and another person who's also black happens to be there. And this person is acting in this way. Why is it that the two people who are different, who, who, who happen to be Black, are treated in the same way. How? Because once our presence was there, this reaction started to happen. And I'm not a person to go to my job and talk politics. I don't talk politics in my job. I, don't, I veer away from things like politics, race, all this stuff in my job because I'm there to play the music. I'm there to fulfill something. Most of the time, I'm there to play just like everyone else is there to play. So there's multiple fronts that needs to change within orchestra culture. And they, people need to ask themselves these questions. Instead of me just telling it, ask yourselves these questions. Why did it go on this long? How did it get that far? How in the hell is the national court, you know, how is the court system thinking that this is completely wrong, but an orchestra doesn't think this is wrong? We can really have an honest, fruitful conversation if we just deal with it head on. Let's stop beating around the bush. I understand race. People are so tired of hearing about it. I know people are so, but I'm tired of hearing about it too. And a conversation can literally 
shifts so many things that people sit down and have a dialogue together that goes towards real change. Because for some people, it's just an uncomfortable conversation. For me, it's my life. It's not just an uncomfortable conversation. Mm -hmm. It is my existence, which has stopped me from being paid in a lot of places, which has put my career, me being on the audition trail for 10 years, making 15 finals. when I saw a lot of my other contemporaries landing jobs, get tenure comfortably with no horror story. So I want boring black stories. I want Titus, went to Juilliard, did well in auditions, got his principal job, is a great citizen of the orchestra, has tenure, goes on with his life, has his wife and kids, and lives his boring and eventful <laughs> orchestra life. <laughs> that's what I want. <laughs> so that's, that's what I'm saying about that. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much, Titus. I mean, everything you've offered to us and our listeners has just been so so generous of you to share your time and ideas and creativity and i'm sure that that everyone that does listen will appreciate it so really thank you so much for being with thank us. you i really appreciate you having me on here and of course it was an honor and i'm glad that we could have this conversation just keep pushing it forward <laughs> thank you so much titus and now dakota So, John, I mean, I, I've had the fortune of having these kinds of talks with Titus frequently and enjoyed them so much. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we talked about his resume a little bit, mm. and it's like somebody that went to every one of the top schools, studied with the best teachers, had the right pathway through different jobs at orchestras. And then, I mean, to hear that story of him having 15 final round appearances before finding his job. These are the types of questions that our industry must face. As he said, head on, it's just time. And I feel honored to have been able to ask him the types of questions that are going to help me be a better leader in my situation. And I'm really hopeful that, our listenership will feel the same way. Yeah, and and I think we're really fortunate as an industry to have people like Titus who, you know, he mentioned having so many friends who gave up because of, you know, all of the forces that were working against them. So to have someone who has such perseverance and determination to keep fighting, not only to, to get to where he is, but to also then be willing to share and talk about what he thinks could be fixed and how we can repair, heal, and move forward in a stronger, better way. Uh, I hope people will will really listen to a lot of those great ideas and suggestions that he offers for, for the process of auditioning, for the way we should re-envision our institutions, our boards, our missions, and the way that we approach the issue of, of expanding audiences and expanding the way in which we connect to audiences and reflect our community. I think those are all so important. Right. And you mentioned, right, that, um, you know, his situation is a unique one now because he's the first black principal oboe in a major symphony. But it was very important what he said, which is, well, I'm not the first one out there. I'm the first one to get tenure. Right. 
because how many black musicians may be out there that don't have a position of security? Right. They're a freelance musician or they're in an orchestra and don't have tenure yet or they're in a situation in a conservatory with a major teacher that isn't working with them fairly or whatever and they don't have that voice. So for, to listen to people like Michael Ingram or Titus or like you see the work that Anthony McGill is doing, these leaders these and who combine the absolute highest level of artistry with this prominent voice for black equality um, these are the voices that we all must listen to and heed the words that they say well we hope that we will continue to be able to assist all of our listeners in bringing these sorts of important not only for our conducting careers but for our our time as citizens on earth uh, these sorts mm-hmm. of issues to light. And Enrico, that idea of citizenship that you're talking about, one other thing that struck me so much that Titus said was the courthouse in Nashville mm-hmm. recognized his problem with more acuity than did the orchestra. Right. And as not just citizens, but artistic citizens and leaders, I think we should aim to be the most inclusive, the most responsible, and be beacons for the type of equality work that must be done rather than lagging behind because we are playing the music of the Western European diaspora, as Titus mentioned. But that doesn't mean we need to be stuck in any sort of backward-looking social construct. And so this really makes me heartened that we now have a, a guide, a road in front of us with pretty easily identifiable and implementable solutions to some of these grave problems that, as, as Titus mentioned, this isn't a conversation point for him. This is his life. And we'll continue those conversations as much as we can here on Upbeat. So we hope that you'll follow us on social media, like us on Facebook, uh, check out additional resources that we offer, including Titus, who is writing for our website, everythingconducting.com. And you can go see more articles about these sorts of issues. And come back soon to hear a little bit more on our next upbeat. Just, 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 just,